0: Everybody. Welcome to the Thinking Collaborative podcast, where we showcase the amazing work that our international community of trainers is engaged in to improve schools and organizations. I'm Carol brooks Simoneau, and I've worked as a teacher a reading in adaptive schools, and for the past six or so years, a co-director for Thinking
1: Collaborative. Hi, I'm Doreen miore Morola, and I am one of um, Carol's colleagues as a co-director of Thinking Collaborative. Uh, for about the same amount of time. And I, too, have worked in a variety of roles in education. I've been an English teacher for a full 38 years. I was department chair, um, a teachers' union officer, a staff developer, and I have been a training associate for Habits of Mind, Cognitive Coaching, and Adaptive Schools as well. So it's my pleasure to be here this evening. Hello. My name is Lisa Joseph. I reside in Colorado. I started out as the office manager for Center for Adaptive Schools and Center for Cognitive Coaching about 21 years ago, and have worked my way into um, being a co-director, one of the, the three, alongside Doreen and Carol and I've done that for the um, almost two years now, and I'm delighted
0: to be here. Thanks for having me. Today we have Bob Garmston, co-developer for Adaptive Schools and Cognitive Coaching, renowned global trainer, and author of a treasure chest of books. As we will do with each episode, we'll ask Bob several questions to gain insights into his background, his sense of impact that adaptive schools and cognitive coaching has had on the world of education, and how to remain innovative in educational leadership. At the end of the questioning, we'll do a quick set of lightning round questions, uh, just for fun. So Bob, to begin, please tell us a bit about your background and how you got into the field of education.
2: Well, how I got in is a delightful story. Uh, My background is uh, high school dropout, uh, U.S. Navy, GI Bill, uh, and uh, entered teaching by meeting a man in an elementary school, his name was Howard Rolfe. And I was between jobs at the moment, I was going to junior college, between jobs. And uh, so I was uh, working for the local newspaper uh, going from elementary school to elementary school, talking to fifth and sixth grade kids, telling them that if they were to get a newspaper subscription with their family, they'd get this neat, neat um, <laughs> uh, gift, you know, of, of, of a set of steak knives. And what's really strange about that is earlier I had sold Cutco cutlery, which is the, the world's primo uh so nice. anyway, Howard Rolfe stood in the hallway. He would not let me in the classrooms, but he stood there for probably an hour and a half, two hours. And he told me what his vision was for education. And that just sparked me. And from there I knew where I was going. And so I, I turned to uh, uh, earning a credential. I started teaching as an intern. Um, and I've taught middle grades. My first class was 42 fifth graders, um, in a rural setting. Uh, <laughs> I took all of them to the coast for a, uh, seashell, uh, water, uh, thing, field trip. Oh my God. And, uh, uh, did a home visit for every single one of them wow. and it was a lovely way to start teaching. Uh, other than having a supervisor come out from the county office, tell me she wanted to see me. And we, she went into the principal's office and she told me that I was hurting kids. And I teared up and I said, what the hell do you mean hurting kids? She said, well, the way you're teaching math, you're not using diagnostic tests. And I said, what is that? I had jumped through any courses on anything. (laughs) So um, uh, that was the beginning. Uh, From there, uh, a uh, resource teacher in Marin County, a uh, teaching principal, uh, a director of instruction in two different districts, and then um, part of a team serving as a principal in Saudi Arabia to um, individualized instruction for the Aramco school system. And the pattern that we were using, we were using uh, project plan, computer assisted learning. So we had individual units for kids in social studies, uh, math, language arts. And each day in the morning, teachers would get a printout of how their kids did yesterday on a quiz. And based on that, teacher would group them, provide instructions, what have you. So it was was an incredible adventure for them and for everyone. And it's there that I learned one of my most important uh, lessons in education. Uh, And that is, I learned, maybe I invented it, I don't know, I came to realize that there was a good risk assessment uh, algorithm that I could use. And the risk assessment algorithm goes like this. How much can the system hurt me? Well, you know, bad records and, and, and even fire me. Well, how much can the system reward me? and in that setting there was merit pay and all this kind of stuff and if you decide that neither one of those are that important to you then you do what's right you do what you think is right so that was an early lesson in a a very odd and delightful setting so
0: you had a really unique journey um And you were offered a vision that really tugged at the core of who you are. And through your professional journey, you touched many, many levels and many hearts. in the end, you found that there was a true balance between risk and reward. Mm -hmm. And you knew that when you were centered, um, you were able to discover what was right and what was best.
2: And I would say more than balance between risk and reward, by assessing those two, it allowed me to move forward or not move forward on what I believe believe was right regardless of where the uh, school system was.
0: So it allowed you to make that assessment for for those steps forward?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Bob, for people that aren't familiar with um, your memoir, certainly, uh, when you, you say that you were a high school dropout and ended up doing the things that you've done, um, reading your book, I don't do that anymore, is, I think, a, a game changer. I think that they can get, really get to know you on a, a very different level and know probably why you were both uh, an intuitive teacher and um, an empathic and compassionate teacher. really wanted to do what was best for both the students and your colleagues so certainly that book is highly recommended I don't do that anymore so in the last five years what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your professional and or personal life
2: Um, I'll respond to that but before I do Doreen I want to tell you where the title of that book came from. Okay, I was uh, in Lake Tahoe with a colleague. It was a Sunday. Uh, We went up to get a cup of coffee and um, there were newspapers for sale. But oh my goodness, there was a line about, you know, around the block. And um, I said to my friend, I said, you know, I could just swipe one. And then I said, but I don't do that anymore. And he said, that's the title for your book.
1: <laughs> that's a great story, Bob. Thank yeah, you. Yeah,
2: yeah, that was great. The The question, Doreen, that you pose is... Um,
1: Last five years, new belief, behavior, yeah, or habit?
2: Got it. Um, I think at I'm 87, and I think at age 84... Uh, I stopped international travel and presenting. And um, one of the things that I have begun to do fairly recently is keep a gratitude journal. And uh, the gratitude journal really supports the changing of a mindset or the enhancement of a mindset. If I'm uh, feeling down or self-critical, I get a chance to remind myself how fortunate I am To A, even be alive, you know, and B, all of the other kinds of ways that uh, that I'm fortunate. The Gratitude Journal prompts me to look with empathy on the behavior of others. And that's always been a tendency of mine, but it's it's really increased it, uh, enhanced it. Along with that, it has been an identity shift for me. Uh, leaving the active part of this work, uh, as uh, William Bridges tells us, one goes through a transition or through transition zones that are tough. And uh, I had a tough time first year. And one of the major issues that that grew out of that was clarity about who the question Who am I?" And um, a big part of that was that I am a partner uh, with my wife. And I had been traveling, you know, everywhere. had never been home. Well, I was home, you know, to get my socks. But. So uh, all, of that, all of that was a big shift. And that's part of the gratitude piece.
1: Your gratitude journal, then, your intrapersonal communication really affirmed for you. Um, who you were going to be as you move forward, mm-hmm. giving up something that you love dearly and becoming reacquainted with someone you really love dearly. Yeah,
2: that's nice. Yeah.
0: So, as a leader, we've all had the opportunities to bruise our noses, skin our knees. Uh, we've had those things in the moment that felt like failures. What's an, a failure that you had that seemed to set you up for later success?
2: Uh, two come to mind. Uh, one was in my first job as a director of instruction, small district. Uh, it was the beginning of the school year, and we had a teacher vacancy, and we were desperate. And a teacher applied who appeared to be God's gift to teaching. Oh, my goodness. And we just grabbed her and said, okay, you're hired, let's go. Three weeks into the semester, we got news she was hitting second graders with a two by four and a buck. Well, that was a mistake. (laughs) And um, we were eager, of course, for a teacher and we probably didn't check uh, background enough. And so that's a simple lesson about being sure that you check uh, references and backgrounds, what have you. But the lesson took another twist when I was in Santa Cruz, uh, also serving in that role, and we were hiring a woman, I forget for which position, and man, she was magnificent. She was just really special. And I had a funny feeling in the pit of my stomach. And the word that came to me, interestingly, was "witch." W-I-T-C-H. And I checked with her uh, references at the district that she was working with. And my intuition had led me to the way they described her, that she was bad news. She looked good on the surface, but she was really bad news. So uh, the lesson essentially is about um, trusting intuition, uh, not setting it aside for quote unquote reason. Uh, the other lesson happened, of the other mistake happened when Jane uh, and Lee and Art and I were doing final organizing on the most recent Covenant Coaching Book. And uh, Jane Carolee flew to Sacramento and we would meet every morning for, I think, a morning for about four days. And for some reason, I was a jerk. Uh, uh, and I was aware of that, you know, for during the first two days, I was argumentative, not cooperative, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was aware of the behavior. And uh, on the third day, we're driving down to meet with them. I asked myself the classic question, who do I need to be? And the response was, I need to be a student. Wow, what do students do? They pay attention, they ask questions, they probe for specificity, uh, et cetera. And uh, so that was a, a delightful use of that pattern for myself and recognizing that it's a very powerful generic question. Who do I need to be or who do I want to be?
0: So your first learning had to do with, with hiring and being a believer in others. uh, You found that you had to do a reverse course. Yeah. And then the learning from that was really to draw on your gut instinct to know that there are times when you just got to rely on um, what your head and your heart are telling you. Second one is about going back to that identity and remembering that in all instances, uh, that as students, we're learners and we take on that, the the behaviors that match that identity.
2: And those behaviors that are required or one, I don't know if they're required, but they're useful in a collaborative venture where you're learning from each other and what have you. Thank you. Uh, regarding trusting intuition, um, I don't have the book nearby. It's something like The Power of Is. I'll look it up and, and get it to you. Uh, it's written by a man who is a musician. He describes himself as an improvisational musician. and Uh, It was fascinating to me in reading it to find out that um, the man that was so significant, Gregory Bateson, had mentored this man. That's a really incredible connection. And so his book is about improv, improvisation. And he tells a lovely story of Martin Luther King... Uh, giving the uh, uh, I Have a Dream speech. And a friend of his had helped him work through that uh, language that he was going to use. And the friend was sitting on the the podium when Dr. Martin started. And part of the way through, fairly early, Dr. Luther Martin paused. And the guy, his friend said, Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. Wasn't part of the script, but that launched him into improv. Now, in in improvisation, one carries the seeds, you know, that you build something from. And he had talked about that before. He might have used some of it in a speech somewhere. And as you know, that's one of the most powerful things that we recall. Uh, from Martin Luther King that day. So improv. Carolyn McCanders and I (coughs) are uh, writing a book for teacher facilitators. And we're very nearly done. I think we call the mindset something like prepare, but don't attach yourself. Prepare, but don't attach yourself. And each of us know that our best work comes from diligent preparation, but we don't stick to the script that we've devised. We branch from there, we move from there, uh, and we respond to what is happening in the moment. So, uh, that's a nice piece from that book. And
1: so that's
0: really that part of that um, being able to flex in the moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: going instinct and improv improvising.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So your proclamation that there are too many books in your office (laughs) um, leads right into the next question that we have for you, which is is very appropriate. So you're a prodigious and voracious reader. You just a little earlier said that you um, are still a part of an international book club. What do you think... Um, for you is the book or books that has most influenced your leadership?
2: I think hands down, it's a book I'm still reading. And the book is called Caste, C-A-S-T-E, by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isabel, uh, two years ago, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, for a book called The Warmth of Other Suns. And in that book, she tells the story of what's referred to as the Great Migration of um, 1950, somewhere in that area to 1970 or 75, the migration of blacks from the South to the North. And reading that book is is like getting punched in the gut. Many times, as you get the experience that uh, some black folks have had. The current book, CAST, C A S T E, she is saying essentially that the racism or discrimination issues that we have in this country are buried very deeply in our collective reference system. That's my language, not hers, but in our collective reference system. Um, And she goes on to, uh, in part, uh, talk about, well, two things. First of all, 1934, uh, when Nazis had come to power in Germany, uh, they sent people over here to study how we treat the blacks. And they came to study that because they wanted to learn from us to apply those lessons to Jews. I mean, that is just mind-blowing. Just mind-blowing. And... Um, she uh, comments, and the reason I say that it's uh, built in our collective uh, unconscious, our or, uh, reference system, is uh, in uh, part three of the book, she describes what she calls eight pillars. Eight pillars of caste. Um, number one is divine will. And at the very beginning in this country, there were a lot of biblical references and what have you. Uh, heritability, many kinds of things that we did about uh, if you have Negro blood, you know, are you a black person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, endogamy. Don't you love that word? I just learned it. <laughs> <laughs> endogamy is... Uh, controlling who marries, controlling who marries. And so on and on and on and on, there there are uh, many other things that are so structured, uh, uh, structures built in to the way we live and operate that uh, I think it's just a a deep bearing in uh, in our collective unconscious. She tells one story about Martin Luther King, visiting India, by the way, she says, three countries have caste systems, India, the United States, and Nazi Germany. So um, Martin Luther King is visiting India, is giving speeches, and at one place, he's introduced like this. This is Dr. Martin Luther King. He is an American untouchable, Holy macro. Holy macro. And uh, so she goes on in that vein. Reading the book, you can't look at us or others or oneself the same. And certainly these are not simple issues to be able to address. So
1: this book really highlights for um, you, the foundation, the literal structure, when you talk about pillars that this country was founded on, that it became the house and it was built on um, systemic racism. And, is causing you really not that you haven't before because certainly you have but to even take a closer look at white privilege and who you are as as a leader who you are as a a person who walks in this world with people who um, have been diminished by the the structure that we built
2: yeah yeah um I've heard somewhere, I don't know, maybe it's in the book or something. Uh, a black person uh, kind of responding with, I don't know if the word is surprise. Uh, it's, it's it's more like, oh my god, when a white person gets something about their experience, you know, an epiphany. Yeah, yeah. And they
1: all sit back and laugh because for us, it is uh, this moment of enlightenment when we finally start to get it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Cass, the origins of our discontents.
0: So, you've referenced some times that we're living in. And right now, you know, they, they appear to be very turbulent and they can offer us opportunities to change who we are and and also what we do. Knowing that educators are digging deep and and really reflecting on their practice and their beliefs, what do you think might be the most important questions that educators should be asking right now?
2: Um, I thought about that and I thought about the question, who are we talking about when we talk about educators? talking about teachers, talking about administrators, talking about scholars or professors. And I think the questions are different uh, for for those groups. Um, for teachers, I think the question is a, a question that's, that's always there, always, always has been there. How can I serve, how can I serve you know, the totality of who I'm working with, children. For administrators, I think it is more of a question like, how can I, or what do I need to do to be totally passionately committed to learning in three areas, and simply uh, efficacy would be one area, Uh, interdependence is, is another, and I think citizenship is the third. We need an educated citizenry, my God, you know? Big time. So
0: those questions Uh, differ on who the question is being directed toward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And really it's about finding that passion. It's about learning to serve and then calling on energy sources and states of mind and becoming good, responsible citizens to this world.
2: Yeah. And helping students. I was going to say this and Carol and Doreen, I think you have some experience about this at international schools. Um, students in those schools very often have a sense of being a world citizen so it's it's citizenry in terms of paying attention and uh contributing and making things better and uh our schools lack that uh and so that that's what i'm referring to is having that that awareness that I and we are part of a democratic system that we are, I'd say, responsible for being knowledgeable and participating and contributing. Uh, so.
0: And really the, the draw for international work, uh, and really the intoxication of it is that you get to see the world from a different view.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the curriculums, I think, uh, are often uh, aimed at, uh, for example, uh, when I was working in Tanzania with uh, Bill Powell and Ochen Powell, Bill had an ongoing project of serving a, a leprosy com- uh, community. And in all the international schools, something like that is going on.
0: that true commitment to others so that true serving.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. You've talked a little bit about the need for teaching empathy, citizen citizenry, citizenship. Um and certainly things are changing in all around the world in education very very quickly. But if you had a crystal ball bob and you could see into the future, 10, 20 years down the road, what might you see education looking like? feeling
2: like well yeah. it, is this the last question is yeah, this, before well, we
1: do the lightning round yeah you,
2: you said you saved the easiest question for last
1: <laughs> that's the easiest <laughs> if it is we're going to record it and we're going to sell your answer you
2: betcha you betcha <laughs> oh my oh my well as we all know uh in an adaptive world, this affects this, that affects that, and blah, 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 you know, we're in a popcorn machine. So if the right forces are at work, uh, what I would hope to see is a number of schools, and I say not all schools trying to be, a, bring some realism to it, but that a number of schools that, are, that have thoughtful leadership and teaching members and are using adaptive principles would have cleared out all of that stuff that we do that's unnecessary. Oof. It's gone. Opening time, opening energies, opening attention to be able to refine and prove what we do that is necessary.
1: So stripping away the conventions and really, really asking those questions. You know, who are we? Who do we need to be, as you said earlier? Why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. And you've asked really good questions or made really good comments about what is the purpose or what should be the purpose of educating the youth? And why are we doing it? way? And as you said, yeah. tripping away a lot of the, the nonsense. And um, because those those time traps, those we've always done them this way. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I I love the story of how railroad uh, tracks got to be the width they are. Do you, do you have a story? It's a lovely no. story. I'd love well, to hear it the was story. The, the, it was, the width is the width of a horse's rump, (laughs) right? Because initially there were carriages and the wheels made ruts in the road. I love it.
1: That's a great story.
2: So that's why we do it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: We could go on for days, just about that last comment. Oh yeah. So we're gonna start the lightning round. And you've talked about travel, and, and uh, certainly, I, I, Carol and I have been blessed with teaching internationally as well. And a lot of times, you go on an adventure, and there is serendipitous learning that takes place. So what trip or adventure for you, Bob, brought you some serendipitous learning? And what was that learning? <laughs>
2: Well, uh, a couple occurred to me. One is pretty late. I was teaching in uh, Jerusalem and uh, one of the hosts pulled me off to the side and said, uh, don't touch the hair of women that are wearing wigs. Wigs? (laughs) I (laughs) have no idea. (laughs) So a little bit of uh, cultural uh, denseness there. I think more significantly, well, I would say two things. This probably is not a direct answer to your question, but I remember teaching in Syria. And uh, we were teaching, I was teaching adaptive schools or, or garden coach, I don't remember which. And there is a word that we use, for example, like holonomy. Um, that's in our orientation and makeup, what have you. So to teach the concept, I asked people to pair up and develop Syrian language for it. Mm. And that was, that was just fun, you know, and it's one of those uh, intuitive things. I was on a trip once with um, David Huanowski. We were uh, trekking in Thailand and um, It's a group of maybe 10 of us. And one of the persons that was with us was a female speaker who had been a speaker at the the conference that we just left. And she, moving from one boat to another, slipped and got a compound fracture. Mm. And we are nowhere on a lake, and I remember David and his son taking over, and they um, bundled her as best they could, got her in a boat, took her to a land place, got her in a car. My God, they had to go six or eight hours in the car but to take care of her. And uh, for me, it was just another rich reminder. Leadership, responsibility, ownership stepping forward
1: so for you a couple of things um, one is around the fact that we, that we get locked into our own cultural bubble that we are delightfully and sometimes embarrassingly unaware of what is happening in other cultures uh, another is around language and that things don't really live in the world unless they have a name unless you can, you can name it so for you to be able to um, recognize that and have the Syrian participants explore what might be a language for that concept of holonomy. And the third is that no matter where you are or who you are, you sometimes have to just step up and be counted as a leader, even if you have no leadership role. Take things into your hands and take
2: charge. See, you guys could have done the whole session by just bringing up the paraphrases and just do that and be shorter for people to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, well you know here's round two. Here here's a little softball for you. Okay. What's your favorite right. fast food?
2: Uh, I would say uh, caramelized popcorn. It's not probably not on the fast food list, but it's a junk food that uh, uh, a daughter-in-law makes that just <sighs> unbelievably good.
1: You yep. found it addictive.
2: Oh, it is. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So here's, here's an interesting and odd one. This was one that um, really threw Jill when we interviewed Jill. Um, what's Well, I'll give it to you both ways. What smell do you absolutely have an aversion to, and why? I was gonna ask you which one you love, but it might be caramelized
2: popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) It might very well. I think a smell that is aversive to me is the smell that I encountered initially as a kid in the Oakland area on the water, we would break into uh, uh, rafts, army rafts or something that were equipped with um, GI food and cigarettes and what have you. There's a a sewer-like cell at the edge of uh, that body of water and that's what I recall. Mm
1: So probably for a couple of reasons. One is what you were doing when you smelled that smell. Yeah. That for you still is a little bit haunting and tugs at your heart, right? Yeah. And uh, what they say is that the olfactory sense is the sense most closely related to the memories that sit in our heart.
2: Yeah. And there you have it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, one more. One more for the uh, lightning round. Bob, who, who inspires
2: you? Oh my God, art! Art inspires me. Art Costa, um, Bruce does. Bruce is a pain in the ass because he remembers everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell him you said that.
2: Oh my God! <laughs> I early on with Art, I I discovered that making presentations with him. He just opens his mouth and he's got paragraphs, well-formed paragraphs with good grammar and everything that come out. My God, Arthur, where does that come from? <laughs> oh. I've had many, many people in my life that have inspired me. I've been very fortunate. Carl Rogers is one. I spent a fair amount of time with him. Uh, Fritz Perls, so I spent a little bit of time with him. Um... Caleb Getenyu, we talked about Caleb at a, a conference once, a symposium once. My first principal, who was uncannily uh, intuitive and uh, and smart uh, in a practical way. My first educational mentor. She was. Uh, Director of Curriculum in a school district in um, Rim County. And she's the one who began, uh, encouraged me to uh, begin to take leadership roles, uh, like um, leadership of the math committee, which was significant there because we had adopted the Quisenet Rot as a basal math material kindergarten through grade three. That's unbelievable. Just unbelievable what kids could learn moving there. And I mentioned Robin because about six years ago, I ran into her. And what a treat (laughs) to meet someone that mentored you so, so long ago. Very bright, very active, very introspective woman. Yeah. So,
0: so you get a variety of people who inspired you for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, What What might be a common thread that they all hold?
2: Well, one common thread is that each are brilliant at executing what they do. Another common thread is uh, is belief in people. Yeah, belief in people. So
0: it's that belief that they hold in others rather than self.
2: So wonderful story briefly about Caleb. Um, I was in uh, a three-week uh, class he was doing for migrant kids in the summer. And there was a third-grade boy who was the kid that you've seen in classrooms that cannot stay in his seat. He keeps falling out of a seat. Well, Caleb passed him up front working with him. And Caleb uses a pointer and uh, the process is beautiful. When a kid gets stuck, he just goes back to uh, an earlier thing that would help him unlock it. And Caleb worked with this boy for 20, 30 minutes. And pretty soon Caleb said, well, you know, so, uh, why don't we take a rest, go to recess? The kid says, No, I want to get this. And that was, Caleb was an effect on people. It's beautiful. Yeah.
0: So, they really, who they were, the beliefs they hold inspired others.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, we want to say thank you for listening to um, the. Thinking Collaborative podcast that we did this evening. We offer many thanks to Bob Garmston, uh, delightful regaling us with stories and wisdom, and for Ryan Gleason and Jill Hank for their their technical support. Uh, Please go to our website at thinkingcollaborative.com for resources, books, upcoming seminar opportunities, and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at think underscore collab. In our next podcast, we'll be interviewing Ryan Gleason. And um, you know a little bit about him. He is, as you already heard, one of our tech giants. And he um, is in California at Las Virgenes School District. So we will be talking to him soon, and we'll, we hope you'll tune in. Bob, thank you again for a delightful evening, and thank you for the generosity of your time
2: well thank you it's a pleasure a very rich pleasure just to be with you so thank you